Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. This week has been a game of geopolitical ping pong with the ball bouncing around from the EU-Arab League summit in Egypt to the India-Pakistan border and on to the US-North Korea summit in Vietnam. So it's good to know the UK has been looking at its navel the whole time in another round of confusing delays and amendments to its Brexit plans. Nothing is certain, of course, but the sheer lack of time now means that Brexit is unlikely to happen on March 29, and if it does, it probably won't be an orderly Brexit. All that hassle and drama on our doorstep makes this week's interview all the nicer to listen to. We've got the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, as our guest. And guess what? I didn't ask her about her beautiful new baby or her stay-at-home partner. I just asked her about what she thinks about the world. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. In the podcast panel, we discuss the dangers of dialogue with dictators and what a public body should do when one of its staff stands trial for raping his junior colleague. But first, I give you the youngest female leader in the world, Jacinda Ardern. Jacinda and I spoke in front of a small office here at the Politico offices in Brussels, and the background noise you can hear at the beginning, that's the bubbles rising in a glass of sparkling water that was sitting on the table in between us. I thought maybe if we begin a little bit with your political style and philosophy, so people can get the big picture, and then we'll go into some of the more granular policy details. When I was hearing we'd be doing this interview, I was thinking about how, in a lot of ways, you remind me, or in fact... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez reminds me of you Mm. and that, you know, she does her little Instagram stories Mm. cooking noodles or whatever, but I've seen you doing those videos for years. She's got a handful more followers than I do, I should add. Just a few, just a few. But but what I mean is really interesting is your very authentic way of communicating. You know, Mm. you announce you're running for a different seat and you're doing it barreling down the highway at 100 kilometers an hour in a Facebook video. Speed limit, following the speed limit. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. She wasn't driving, she was just in the car. (laughs) But I guess my point there is that we're seeing lots and lots of contrasting styles now in politics 
politics, whether it's generational, technological, yeah. some of it's ideologically yeah. divided as well. And I wanted to get a sense of how natural that is for you. Yeah. Is it something where you've just decided you really want to invest in communications yeah. or are you just putting yourself out there and being as much you as you can? I would be? love to sit here and say that there is some particular strategy behind exactly what we're doing or I'm doing when it comes to social media engagement or even in style. But there's not, <laughs> you know, I've, some of it therefore may indeed be generational because when I came into Parliament, I probably would have been amongst a few who actually came in already having as a private citizen a Facebook page. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was probably a generational shift, whereas, you know, many of my contemporaries then were, were adopting those tools from the position uh, of already having been a politician. And maybe that means you approach it differently. Mm -hmm. But my approach from the beginning in engaging in those forums was just being myself because it was the place I engaged with my friends and my family. So why would I create any particular veneer or, or otherwise? So that may be part of it. Maybe another side of the coin is simply coming from an environment where we are under five million people. You know, as a politician, uh, you will still have substantial political discussions while you're doing your grocery shopping. So, you know, I take the approach of just being myself and uh, not being afraid to therefore present some human frailty because there's no harm in people seeing that politicians, mm -hmm. despite perhaps what's grown over the years, that politicians are humans, yep. they make mistakes, uh, mm -hmm. but, they're, but they're there often I said this about both sides, for often for very good reason, mm -hmm. good motivation. You, you took the word out of my mouth. It was yeah. kind of like speaking human was what I was thinking of. Yeah. And my dad says hello, and he, <laughs> and he was like, oh, I really like the way she talks. I love her accent, and I love the way she talks. And this is a guy who you normally start a political conversation with. He's like, well, that Trump, he's right about da da da, da and you're like, oh. And so you've broken <laughs> through in some way, even with people who don't have that intuitive interest in politics. Maybe it's, uh, I haven't spent too much time forming theories as well, but you know, I, there was no time to be groomed as leader mm -hmm. because the moment I became leader, a campaign started, so I only had the choice to be myself. Yep. And I, I guard that. I do my own social media. Um, all of it, okay. Uh, yes, yes, I do. Mm -hmm. So that's it's all me. Yep. Um, so I run my own channel, and mm. I always will. Very good. Mm. And, and what part that's of the why job? It's a bit sporadic. No. Sometimes <laughs> patchy. <laughs> what part of the job comes least naturally to you, or, or that surprised you since you since you came into office? I, I guess I had the the benefit of having observed it from the inside. Mm. I worked for a year. I worked for three years in the New Zealand Parliament, but I worked for a year directly for Helen Clark. Mm -hmm. So that gave me a bit of insight into the job. It gave me a bit of insight into the time it took, into um, just the, the the scale of briefings or you know little nitty gritty bits and pieces but as with politics generally because I observed you know politics for a long time before I went into it no one can ever teach you how it feels mm. how it feels is just an exaggeration of what it is to be a member of parliament generally mm -hmm. mm. now I thought I'd do something innovative yes. in this interview which was not ask you about your partner or your beautiful new baby, <laughs> but just leave it out there that I think it's great that someone who's 38 can show that something like this is possible to have Thanks. all those things going yeah. on. So, Thank you. Yeah, there but we go. without being a superhuman person. Exactly. And the reality of it as well. Yeah. Like, I don't think you're holding anything back about Logistical nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's switch to some of those policy uh, yeah. areas now where you're innovating. The wellbeing budget was yes. something that really caught my eye. Mm. When we talk about 
budgets in Europe. It's often because someone in Brussels is nagging a national government because they haven't done the hard work of economic reforms right. or they've let the deficit blow out or yeah. whatever. And you're really trying to sort of go beyond yeah. GDP. Yeah. So why don't you tell us a bit about that? And I'm just guessing there are going to be some skeptics and critics who think it's all a bit hippy-dippy. Yeah. 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 So, so what would you say to those people? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'd say that actually I think probably there's a fair amount of consensus that GDP is an inadequate measure of success. In fact, the architects of GDP never intended it to be used as the thermometer that it is used to the extent that it, that it is used. I think it was even Robert Kennedy who said GDP measures just about everything except that which makes life worthwhile. So this is probably an idea that's had its time. In fact, the OECD has done its own work trying to encourage economies to use indicators and measures that go beyond GDP. So we've really grasped what DAV's developed and we've utilised that to create our own set of measures. We've created a living standards framework. It's held by Treasury. It measures across the four capitals to really try and get a well-rounded view of New Zealand's well-being. Now, that's not unique. A lot of economies and countries are doing that, and for good reason, and I'll, I'll come to that in a second. But the bit that's different for us is that we've said, well, that's all well and good, but how does it change your decision-making? Now, it's one thing every year to just have a little look at the graphs and the, and the pie charts mm-hmm. and say what's different, but what we've decided to do is, for instance, retool some of our existing infrastructure. So our Public Finance Act already, we've changed the Public Finance Act so that we have to report annually on our child poverty figures. Mm -hmm. We have to set targets to reduce child poverty and we have to create a child wellbeing strategy. That in itself isn't a policy metric, but what gets measured gets done. So now successive governments will give cause at every budget for governments to say, what have we done to improve child wellbeing, which we know through evidence affects everything. We've also will be amending the Public Finance Act so that we have to set wellbeing priorities each year and our first wellbeing budget will require ministers to demonstrate how their spending priorities will improve intergenerational wellbeing. So it's really about changing the way we, we do policy. Now, another topic that's often framed in moral terms is climate change, and you're yes. very big on that as yes. well. I mean, it just strikes me that more and more of the facts are piling up now, and that even maybe some things like the Paris Climate Agreement aren't really enough to get yeah. us where we need to get as a planet. What is the scale of transformation that we need to be engaging in, in your view, in the New Zealand government's view, um, to actually get out of this? What strikes me in our region is it's, of course, not a hypothetical in our region. It's clear the difference between the harm to our ecosystems, our biodiversity, through a difference of of 1.5 and 2 degrees. In New Zealand, our goal as a government is to put in place some infrastructure that takes us away from electoral cycles on climate change. Because in the same way that you can't actually make significant changes on child poverty in three years, you can't make significant change on climate change in three years. And so that enduring infrastructure, if I can one day when I'm out of politics look back and still see that that exists, then we will have done our job. So we're at the moment drafting our climate legislation that will embed targets that will create a mechanism for carbon budgeting that will bring in an independent climate commission and all of that is about creating an enduring approach and can that sort of thing align with the eu's systems because just just hearing you talk like that it reminds me a lot of seven-year eu budgeting and things like that and we've actually borrowed from what we've seen abroad in order to inform what we're doing taking the the best from overseas examples but also at the same time taking our own path on some of our ambition 
we've said we want to be 100% renewable by 2035, and we're over 80% now. And that's mostly hydro? Yeah, so we're very lucky with our wind and our hydro in particular. So we know we need, uh, need to take our ambition beyond that. We last year announced that we would not be issuing any further oil and gas exploration permits offshore New Zealand. Now, there's only a handful of countries who have done that. That was significant, but we did it because we know we need to transition parts of our economy. And so we are now working on elements of that transition now, investing in hydrogen initiatives and so on. Now, kindness was not a word that I thought would just get attached into a political debate. But you had uh, this really interesting session with Prince William, yes. and it was around mental health in Davos. Yeah. And you, you just sort of put it out there that mm. you just think we need to be more kind yeah. to each other. Mm. And that was all part of this mental health debate. What was the thinking behind that? What made you want to be part of that? On mental health, the reason for participating in that for me is linked into the well-being conversation, ultimately. In fact, it is one of our five priorities, this budget, is mental health. And why will these estimates that are affects our GDP by up to 5%? We have an extraordinary number of people in New Zealand trying to access mental health services. And we have some of the highest youth suicide rates in the OECD. So it is both a moral and economic issue for us. For me, moral. Yep. Um, and, and actually, Taking an approach of kindness and empathy, I think, is probably a natural reaction in a space like mental health and well-being. We need to remove stigma, and we need to ensure that we create an environment where people are able to access the service they need. And we need to take a preventative approach, look after people's health before it becomes acute. What's probably different is that I use the word kindness in lots of forums, not just talking about mental health, but actually just an approach to politics. And it wasn't a planned thing. I think it's just if I wanted to summarize for me what we needed to do differently, it was about bringing into politics values that we actually teach our kids. But for some reason, when you get to that level of leadership, we drop all of those things that we think are so critical to making healthy societies. And we say, no, actually, we expect our politicians to be assertive and brash and bold and bold to lie. And we just expect that well, why don't we expect the same kind of behaviours that we want our kids to learn? So I, I, that's why, for me, it's about modelling mm-hmm. some of those traits and values that really make a society what it, what it should be. Now, maybe we can switch to more of the nitty-gritty and the, the current hot topics. I thought we'd start with Brexit and then segue into the broader trade stuff sure. and the trade deal you're working on. You met with Theresa May on, yes. on the way to Davos. What was that like? You seem very different people on the surface, you know, party, generation, sort of the way you conduct your politics. But is there like a secret solidarity um, of people who just got this big burden of running a country and never being able to take a day off? Do you, well, do you know, I think actually that in a, in a way, to a certain degree, exists for politicians who, who work together frequently in the international domain. I, you know, regardless of which side of the fence you, you come on, you build these, these working relationships and you have a bit of an understanding of, of the other person's life. Different yep. scales, of course, New Zealand yep. versus the UK and so on, but we have a good re- working relationship and as we should, given particular the relationship between New Zealand and the UK. Yep. Now, I forgot the one fun thing that we do in these interviews. We do a rapid fire Question that's session. not fun. That's not. No, it fun. is fun. It's usually it's fun. only fun for no. you. No, no, no. Because we come, we've come um, from Davos, and so we're going to play a little Davos game where we compete against each other to see who had the most over-the-top 
experience. And we both answer. So it's like it's fair. We're, we're okay. both participating. Do um, I get a copy? Uh, <laughs> no. If you wrote them, that is not fair. That is slightly unfair. It's true. Sorry, I've written out okay. my answer. But they're, they're, they're easy ones to respond to. Okay. Um, who did you do your first double takeover? In the sense of where you're like, oh, oh my God, that was dot, dot, dot. Oh, I did, I, I, I did do a second over the shoulder when yeah. I saw Tony Blair. Okay. Just, you know, yeah. just For me, Robin Wright, the right. House of Cards. Yeah, right. um, <laughs> how many times Clearly did you... I was in the politics <laughs> corner while you were somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. uh, how many times did you slip on the ice? Oh, I think oh. the... Um, the New Zealand team were, were very prepared for they constantly had me with those uh, little grippy things, things. so okay. I actually didn't slip once okay yeah once I slipped okay once. um how many royals did you chat with uh one. Oh no no excuse me Three, uh, four. <laughs> two. Two. Yeah, two. I, think I, I got Prince Hakon in Norway and Queen Rania, but yeah. you, you got William and three yeah, others, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, who was the most powerful personal group you met with? Do you know do you know what from a purely power in the form of soft power? Sir David Attenborough. Oh wow, okay, you win. That was that was great. I, I got Sh I got Cheryl Sandberg and Tony Blair and once. Well, that's so, that's 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 quite yeah. something. But it's less cool. Right. It's less cool. You're, 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 you're three to one off here. Um, now, the Dutch government was jamming eight people into each hotel room to save money. How many people <laughs> slept in your hotel room slash So when you say that, do you? Do, so are you telling me that the I prime think, minister? No, no, no. I think okay. a series of advisors and security guards might Slip have bunked in the same. Yeah. yeah, there was some bunking in the delegation, but not much. Okay. Um, I, however. Will put on record that I offered. Okay, that's well. I was told that that, 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 that wasn't yeah. that wasn't six. I win. I win this one. We had six in our. Did you? Yes, but I did offer. Yeah. And and who <laughs> was the minister? <laughs> I offered the minister of finance. I was like, we're just here. We're fine. We go way back. I, I hope his wife or partner um, uh, is okay with that. But um, he would have been fine. And, and who, who who was your favorite celebrity that you came across? David and Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Yeah, that's fine. That's I fine. mean, yeah. it's every time, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Yours? Bono. Ah. Yeah. What did you talk about? We didn't. I just Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was right. like, is that hair real? And then my boss, Matthew Kaminsky, who was like, definitely not real, it's definitely dyed. I was like, right. I think it's just unwashed. You should have asked. We, that yeah. would have been a great yeah. conversation. Do you yeah, wash your hair? That's a great hair? conversation that opener, isn't good. it? <laughs> um, no, okay, so now let's get back into some of the serious stuff. You have said that New Zealand and Europe, like, they're the natural partners. I think Helen Clark yeah. talked about New Zealand being like the 28th member yeah. state. What is it precisely that means New Zealand makes this investment in this relationship? Because uh, there's a bunch of other countries that kind of go, like, Ugh, Europe, it's old. Like, so we're all about China. Yeah, I think probably t two things. One, one that's uh, extra weight on that in this particular point in time, and one that's, you know, that I think Helen Clark would have particularly been putting emphasis on, and that is... Uh, just our shared values, you know, democracy, human rights, our belief in multilateralism and rules-based order. You know, I think that has always mattered. But current context, that, the context that matters even more now. And so I think that's, for us, this is not just about an economic relationship. It is yeah. about much, much more than that. Now, the next thing on the table is the EU-New Zealand free trade agreement negotiations. Yes. One of the things that you campaigned on was having strict labor and environmental clauses and, and making sure that those are included in any deals that you're going to be involved in. What, what do you think is the scope for having some really actually, strong enforcement? In I'd say that we actually campaigned generally for high quality 
free trade agreements. Yep. We campaigned for also bringing in civic society more on New Zealand side when we are engaged in you know building a mandate for our trade agreements involving people more. And we broadly started a trade for all agenda. And that was actually in response to the TPP negotiations mm-hmm. because what we saw is trade deals were evolving and there's actually you know labor standards and environmental standards that really lift the game in that agreement. But people didn't feel like they were benefiting from trade probably a proxy for feeling not like they were benefiting from globalization generally. So part the, for us, this is about saying we can model high quality free trade agreements. We've pitched that to the EU. We think that there's real benefit to modeling that because ultimately I think you know that's one way we can demonstrate the benefit of trade and that actually more people can benefit from them if we work a bit harder. What are you going to prioritise in saying that this is what we really want out of the trade deal? Like the yeah. must-have rather than the nice-to-have? I'm not going to prioritise. Your starting point is everything. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, so, no, of course, our starting point is always to go for the best outcomes yeah. we can, yeah. but I'm not going to name name, name mm. industries at this point. Fair enough. And now one of the examples where that can become a problem is a split up between the yeah. EU27 and the UK. Yeah. You're one of quite a few countries that's got a problem with how the two parties have Yes. trying to do it so far. Yeah. Run through a little bit how important that is to you and, and where you see that headed. Yeah, look, for us, this is just a matter of maintaining this, really, the status quo. Mm-hmm. We're not asking for any more than what we already have. Yeah. As I've heard our ambassador say, not one more <coughs> kilo of butter, not one kilo less. We're just mm-hmm. seeking the status quo. Yeah. And actually just seeking a fulfilment of the commitment that was made by both the UK and the EU that we wouldn't be worse off. So that means maintaining the flexibility. And so at the moment what's being proposed does not maintain the flexibility of trade between New Zealand, the UK, New Zealand and the EU. Mm -hmm. And so that's all we seek. We continue to maintain that dialogue. We've got creative solutions that we think mean that you would be no worse off, but we're just seeking that discussion. Mm-hmm. It's, it's still in play. Thank you so much, Prime Minister, for joining us. Best of luck with your engagement with the EU and, and your Thank future you. endeavours. I Thank appreciate you. that. Thanks very much. That was Jacinda Ardern. Next up, the podcast panel. Welcome back to the podcast panel, Alva Finn. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Lena. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. So we've got a couple of items on the agenda this week. Let's kick off with the EU League of Arab States Summit that was taking place Sunday and Monday in the Egyptian resort of Sharm el-Sheikh. It's technically the first EU Arab summit. That's because it's happening at leaders level. They've met at ministerial level before, but never with all of the leaders very interesting summit, really, because the Arab countries don't really have a consensus on much, and the EU is heavily divided on migration, which was the official topic of the summit. So I think that brings us to our first question is, is the EU actually being strategic in this summit, or is it actually just by default cozying up to uh, strong men and other authoritarian leaders? Definitely very strategic. It's a very important region. It's a vital region. There are so many things in common between Europe and the Arab states. Unfortunately, it came very, very late. So Um, that's not very strategic then, is it? Very late, certainly because of the ministerial meetings have been going on and on since long time ago. 
of course, don't forget we had so many upheavals and the Arab Spring and, and so many things happened in the Arab world which really prevented of convening leaders together. Definitely, I don't see it just about the strongmen. Each country has a leader when we're, so many of us are fond of our leaders, but it's about the people. And it's always the question for the EU, is it about values or about interests? So as much as there are values that the EU would like to inspire and work with other regions, whether in Latin America or Africa or the ASEAN, I mean, there are strongmen everywhere, even with President Trump. There's still a possibility to sit and dialogue and talk and get to know each other. One of the things that um, it's really important to underline here is that we have very young European leaders, that they've never been in the Arab world, they've ne- I mean, on a, on a political level. They didn't meet many of the Arab well, leaders. Sebastian Kurz was 25 when the Arab Spring took place. Yeah, imagine our Prime Minister of Luxembourg or the Prime Minister of Ireland. So as well, we have very good encounters. I think the dialogue is important. Now, What are the outcomes? Um, I'm not sure about it. When I read the declaration, it was very sad. But still, it's the beginning of many things, I hope, in the future with the next commission to work better. Is dialogue enough, Alva? Um, I think you do have to keep lines of communication open with everyone. I mean, famously, the US were propping up the former Libyan dictator for a long time and Mubarak, you know. So I think that, I mean, this is nothing new. The other thing is that not all, as Lena said, not all leaders of the Arab League are strong men. You know, some of them are democratically elected. You've got like Tunisia as well, for example. Um, So some of them are. And they did keep Syria out. Let's not forget. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think that human rights has always been a tricky thing with, for example, Egypt, I think a lot of the focus, uh, the media attention was on the fact that it was in Egypt and the crackdown on human rights, but also detainees. And the thing is that that was also the case with Mubarak, right? And it's a problem with a lot of these very strategic partners in the region that you can't or that they just won't listen when you say something about human rights because they know that they have power over you. And I think that's the case with Egypt. It's a very important partner in the region for a number of different conflicts and then also on things like migration. So I think it's really important that they go and meet, but I don't see anything very big coming out of this. You know, even when you read the outcome document, it's just fluff. What about something like Bruno Le Maire, the French foreign minister, openly complaining about what is supposedly the other half of Europe's motor, the German government, who have an arms export embargo against Saudi Arabia, a country that is responsible for an awful lot of humanitarian problems in the conflict in Yemen. Obviously, the Khashoggi killing, the journalist killed in Turkey by the Saudi state. And, you know, there's plenty of misogyny running around in Saudi Arabia as well. Like, I find it amazing that France and Germany would openly fight each other the day before a summit like that over a country like Saudi Arabia. Ryan, um, France and UK are experts of arms to Saudi Arabia and to the Arab world is much, much more higher than Germany. It is 10% of what uh, Germany exports of its arms to Saudi Arabia and JCC, while it is 60% of France and 48% of UK. And many of the components of these weapons are made in Germany. 
So definitely France and UK will be really upset. And that shows as well the lack of a united European security and defense policy and foreign policy, because if one country is saying, okay, we are going to not do anything when it comes to weapons to Saudi Arabia, if there were the same system and they were united and we had the same that we call the EU defense um, uh, mechanism, I think it would have been working. But since we are talking about trade, we're talking about investments, we're talking about money, definitely they would choose that above values. Are we really that sad, Alva? Well, I I work for an organization that focuses on this, you know, arms sales around Yemen. I think it's a bit strange for a French foreign minister to be complaining about anybody else's arms embargo. It strikes me as being a bit of a faux pas, you know, that you should be talking about what Germany wants to do with its arms. And and yeah, it's very... You've lost the battle if you can't talk to your closest ally about the problem you have with them and you have to moan about it publicly. Publicly is is strange. That's that's what I meant more. Yeah, I'm sure they say these things behind closed doors. But yeah, the situation in Yemen is terrible. And I think the whole thing around you're meant to be talking about stability, migration, and we're not actually talking about what the root cause of some of this is, which is conflict. Conflict, which is fueled by arms sales from Europe to the region. And if that's not on the table, then I don't know. Yeah. How do you address migration if there are still conflicts like Syria, which has created six million refugees? Well... Another issue that has been hitting headlines in Brussels, but which you wouldn't have caught if you don't live here with us in Brussels, is a European Commission official who has been convicted of raping a junior female staffer who reported to him. He's been sentenced to four years in jail. Marcus Rahoya raped the victim at an office drinks event that was organised to celebrate the birth of his daughter. He's appealing the decision, and the commission says that it suspended him. It sent him home from the office as soon as the allegations were made. And in the meantime, the three years that have passed since then, he's been on his full salary, which is around about 15,000 euros a month gross. And the question really there is, is it right and is it due process that he should be employed and paid during that period or now that he's been convicted or when he goes through the appeal process, and if he is finally convicted at the end of all the appeals processes, should he be under some obligation to pay some of that taxpayer money back? Definitely. I don't understand why they kept him even for three years, even if he was just suspended. The official reason is that was the length of the legal proceedings. It wasn't the commission dictating that timeline. It's still damaging for the reputation and the image of the commission. They would have taught a lesson for many officials that they're still doing their behaviors and nobody knows what's happening there. The Me Too movement and all what Brussels and the young female officials, whether in the parliament or in the commission, they are trying to make a code of conduct and trainings. I mean, there's a whole campaign, Ryan, on that. And then, yeah, the commission, no problem, stay three years and we're going to pay you 15000 a month. They should definitely have cut it as a learning curve for the officials. Alva, is this the price we have to pay to uphold good legal standards? No, I think that you could. It really depends on what your contract says. And we know that functionaries have really quite... Um, <laughs> Yeah, they, they have a lot of protection from a, a labour rights. You do literally need to rape a colleague to lose your job. Well, yeah, I mean, he didn't actually lose it. It was just suspended. So I do, 
I imagine that there is some sort of a clause somewhere that says that, it, yeah, something like this happens, that you need to wait until legal proceedings are finished. Or so what a lot of other organisations would do or employers would do, would they would actually look into the allegations themselves and then figure out whether or not they believe them and then do it on the basis of that. Yeah, what we know uh, about the case is it's not really disputed that sex took place. It's just disputed whether it was consensual or not. So what you then have on the table is someone who was sleeping with someone far their junior in a position of authority, which in many organisations is enough to have someone out the door. Yeah, and I wonder if it is enough to have people out the door if you're a functionaire, which is probably, you know, you sign up to something, but there's actually regulations about the staff and the commission. So it is probably that they just couldn't get rid of him. I'm sure they didn't want to (laughs) keep him after this. Yeah, they were very clear when we spoke on the phone that they were doing what they could within the legal means that they had and that they wouldn't hesitate to take, quote, the appropriate action if he was finally convicted. Mm. And it was left to us to conclude what the appropriate action was. But I think you can all guess it means firing him. Yeah. And I I think this thing about the taxpayers' money, I mean, once you pay someone, they're not going to have to give it back, right? I mean, that's their own fault for not having fired him. So I don't think that could be the case. But it just goes to show that maybe this was before this code of conduct, because the commission now have a code of conduct as well, right? Oh, they've always said they've had this code of conduct, like predating the original Harvey Weinstein and follow on Mm. revelations going back two years. Yeah. They should find him. At least, if he doesn't pay back. He has been forced to pay compensation to the victim, 30,000 euros. Yeah. But that's not the commission. You're right. The commission hasn't extracted some kind of fine. Mm. Yeah, I think it's probably just an unfortunate legal thing that's holding them from just firing him. Because, I mean, who wants to have someone in the books for three years? Now convicted rapist in the books for three years. With the title principal advisor. If I was one of the other 58 principal advisors of the European Commission... That would be devaluing my brand and my standing in the community to have that man with that title alongside me. Anyway, that's all we've got time for on this week's episode. Next week, you can look forward to the first instalment of a new regular feature. I'll be discussing European opinion polls with Cornelius Hirsch, the founder of pollofpolls.eu. And remember, podcasting is a team effort. This episode of EU Confidential wouldn't have been possible without Christina Gonzalez, Wei Dong Lin and Andrew Gray. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 